Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. The second scripture lesson this morning comes from Psalm 119. I will read verses 137 through 144. Listen for the word of the Lord. You are righteous, O Lord, and your judgments are right. You have appointed your decrees in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, but your commandments are my delight. Your decrees are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like the aftermath of a particularly disastrous car crash, that is how Dear Maid McCullough, lifelong student of the Reformation, describes Western Europe in the 16th century. All around, he writes, were half-demolished structures, debris, people figuring out how to make sense of their lives that had suddenly been transformed. The Reformation was an explosion of the cultural and religious unity that had characterized Western Europe during the Middle Ages. In his book, All Things Made New, The Reformation and Its Legacy, Dear Maid McCullough argues against a myth about the Reformation that you and I may not have ever been aware of, but that Reformation scholars seem to know. The myth is that the old church was in such a tottery state that all that was needed was to put a little finger on it and it would fall over and collapse. McCullough says that this was not the case. The Protestant reformers destroyed a powerful, self-confident institution that was going strong. That this happened makes it all the more bizarre. You see, it would have been more understandable if economic, political, or social pressures, internal or external, had been causing the powerful institution of the Roman Catholic Church to crack or totter. But according to McCullough, that really wasn't the case. Instead, the Reformation was set off by a big idea. The idea was this, that God is all-powerful and therefore is Lord of death as well as of life, which means that nothing we human beings do, no intercessory prayer, no penance, no payment for our deceased loved ones around which the church had built an elaborate system could alter God's judgment. That was the idea 
that brought down the very powerful system and structure that Western Europe had taken for granted. Furthermore, it wasn't the secular or religiously indifferent who brought about the Protestant Reformation. The reformers were people like the German friar Martin Luther, who had believed passionately in the old church's teachings about death, salvation, and the afterlife, and then who came to see that they had been cheated by these teachings, and that not only had they been cheated, but that they, as clergy themselves, had cheated others through their ministry. As leaders of the church, they had further propagated a big falsehood. It's amazing, really, when any person changes their mind so completely as Luther and the other reformers did. How many times have you and I, in the course of our lives, so completely radically changed our minds, our convictions, and what did it take for that to happen? I suspect that people change their minds, their convictions, when in one way or another, they lose confidence in them. In the case of Martin Luther, his confidence in the church's intricate system of indulgences by which one could intercede for, pray for, the and pay for the deceased to go to heaven was called into question and ultimately lost the more seriously he weighed another big idea. In his study of the writings of St. Augustine, African theologian of the fourth century, Martin Luther kept encountering the conviction that was perhaps central to Augustine's thought. It was the idea that human beings are so utterly corrupt that there is nothing we can do for our own salvation. We need God to save us. Augustine called humanity, including himself, a lump of perdition, a lump of lostness. At the center of his theology, then, is the idea that we have no business placing our confidence in human beings, our institutions, or any of our efforts to save ourselves. In light of this big idea, how could he not see the falseness and illusion of the church that told people what they could do to ensure their salvation, such as paying for masses for the good of their souls and the souls of their loved ones after they died. The basis of the Protestant Reformation was, therefore, a telling of truth, that God alone can save us. This truth-telling has become known as the Protestant principle or Protestant critique. It casts a critique on anything that places confidence in human effort that should be placed instead in God alone. The critique relativizes everything else. According to this view, some things may get one's vote, but should never get one's confidence. The profound sense of pessimism among human beings, which was at the heart of the Reformation, had a difficult time coexisting with another great movement of thought in its day, 
the movement known as the Renaissance. The Renaissance was championed by Christians who were humanists, who believed that human beings have potential and value. These humanists believed that insofar as God has given human beings skills and gifts, they could be used for the glory of God. With a more positive sense of human capabilities, these humanist Protestant reformers pushed for social reform. Much more than Luther did, these Protestant reformers wrestled with the paradox running throughout their social consciousness that they are called to reform the very sinful state of affairs in the social order that they were responsible for creating in the first place. The paradox continues to be a characteristic of the branch of the Reformed tradition that came to be known as Calvinism. Still today, our social consciousness wrestles with this paradox. We are never at ease. I have recently read a book that brings to the fore how this paradox is at work in our social consciousness today. The book is entitled, Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world. It's written by journalist Anand Giridharadas. I certainly found the truth-telling in this book to be challenging. It caused me to wrestle with my, con my conscience and way of being socially conscious. As Giradaradas observes, we are living in a time of great innovation. In nearly every field of inquiry, we seem to be experiencing a period of renaissance. Scientists have made great discoveries in medicine and genetics. Drawing upon the advances of the internet and video, educators have created new ways of learning. With farmers markets springing up in communities across America, we have experienced a culinary renaissance as well. Books abound and can be delivered to our doorstep in no time at all. The government has more data at its disposal and more means of communicating with its citizens. These are just some of the myriad examples of the immense advancements that have taken place in recent years. And yet, as such advancements are made, we notice that those who benefit most from these advancements are those who are wealthy. More and more people want advancements like these to lead also to societal progress. And yet, since they don't seem sufficiently to do so, Nearly everyone agrees that systems for such progress are broken and in need of reform. With this recognition, in recent years, a great many fortunate people have been trying to make the world a better place. Anand Giridharadas writes about the phenomenon that, quote, today's elite may be among the more socially concerned elites in history. There is no question, he writes, that the outpouring of elite-led social change in our era does great good and soothes pain and saves lives. While this is laudable, he points out the paradox in what is happening today. 
that social reform is being led by the very people and institutions who benefit most from its status quo. For example, Goldman Sachs launched an initiative called 10,000 Women, through which it invested in female businesses and mentored them. Goldman also developed an instrument called a social impact bond, by which it would profit if its investee, a social impact program, met its social impact goals. Rivals such as the Boston Consulting Group pledged to change the world for both our social sector and our commercial clients. Bain and company, too, made a similar declaration in saying, quote, we're aiming to transform the whole social sector. Likewise, one of Morgan Stanley's advertising slogans was, quote, capital creates change. You get the point. We are seeing today a proliferation of proposals for market-based ways of changing the world. Running rampant is language about social everything, social impact, social enterprise, and social innovation, aiming to recruit business analysts straight out of college. McKinsey and company used the following language in its recruitment materials, change the world, improve lives, invent something new, solve a complex problem, extend your talents, build enduring relationships. To back this up, McKinsey set up a social sector practice. As a parent of a college student, I'm suddenly seeing young people surrounded with and growing up with the message that you can do well by doing good. That you can do well by doing good. As much as I would like this to be true for my daughter and for your kids too, I can't help but question it. I can't help but apply the Protestant principle, the Protestant critique to it. If we want to do good to solve some of the most intractable social problems of our day, we cannot erase our role in causing or perpetuating them. The truth is that we are debtors in need of mercy more than we are saviors. At the end of his book, Anand Giridharadas shared how he came to write this book. He had been named a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute for a program that seeks to equip a, quote, new breed of leaders to address the world's most intractable problems. He wrote about his enriching experience as a fellow, including the perks and pleasures of it. As he further immersed himself into the Aspen Institute's universe and savored its luxuries and connections, he found something to be amiss. He writes, here were all these rich and powerful people coming together and speaking about giving back. And yet the people who seemed to reap most of the benefits of this coming together were the helpers, not the helped. I began to feel like a casual participant in an accomplice to, as well as a beneficiary of a giant sweet-lipped lie.
Why were we coming to Aspen? To change the system or to be changed by it? Could the intractable problems we proposed to solve be solved in a way that we silently insisted at minimal cost to elites with minimal redistribution of power? In his fifth year of the program, he was asked to give a talk to a few hundred of his fellow fellows at their summer reunion. He decided, with some anxiety, to write and deliver the speech that was the seed of this book. In it, he described what he called the Aspen Consensus. That is, the winners of our age must be challenged to do more good, but never ever tell them to do less harm. He chose to share this story because he wanted to make a point, a plain point, that the best way to know about a problem is to be part of it. He himself has worked as an analyst at McKinsey, has given multiple TED Talks, has earned significant money giving speeches, has attended conferences claiming to change the world. Undeniably, he has been an active participant in the elite system that his book criticizes. That we are part of the systems that we criticize is not a foreign concept to any of us. It was not foreign to John Calvin. It wasn't foreign to Martin Luther or any of the reformers. It was not foreign to St. Augustine or to the Apostle Paul. It wasn't foreign to our Lord Jesus Christ, a Jew critical of the Judaism of his day. It was not foreign to Habakkuk or the other prophets of the Hebrew Bible or to the psalmist. This paradoxical truth of our reality was articulated by St. Augustine, sharpened by Martin Luther. It was never easy to tell, and it is still never easy to tell ourselves and all our friends, especially when we want to do good for the world, that we are not the saviors that we think we are. But that is precisely the hard truth that we must maintain. For if we are called to be reformers, it's only with this truth and God's help that we can hope to build a better kingdom on earth than the one we currently have. Amen.